Hollywood's latest box office bomb is Hollywood. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve Green with Bill Whittle and Scott Ott, and this is Right Angle, brought to you by the members of BillWhittle.com. And gentlemen, this is one of those stories that just shines a light on my black little shrunken heart. Uh, Hollywood lost more than $500 billion in market value in 2022. Now, you may say, yeah, the, 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 the markets were all off last year or this year. It's not over yet. Uh, but Hollywood really led the way. Uh, they underperformed a underperforming market. And uh, Bill, this is the part that this is the part where I, I, I really get some uh, some some shoddy in my Freuden. Um, the 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 studios that led the way in this financial collapse were the left-leaning ones. Walt Disney, Netflix, yep. and Comcast accounted for the bulk of the bloodshed. And that was from uh, Breitbart.com to use the word bloodshed. I just I, I just love that. They also say that the Dow Jones Media Titans Index, which tracks the performance of 30 of the world's biggest media companies, shed 40% of its value this year. Total market value declining from $1.35 trillion to $808 billion, according to Financial Times. Uh, Bill, I have never seen in my life a town more obsessed with money than Hollywood, uh, specifically in the entertainment industry more broadly. Uh, what happened to that? Well, left left wing politics happened to it. I mean, Disney is by far the worst offender in terms of what they put out. And and because of what Disney used to be, they've fallen the furthest. Yeah. You know? I mean, when I was a kid, Disney, I mean, just I just can't bear the thought of Walt Disney being alive today to see what what's being done in his name. But Disney owns just about everything. Right. And they, they own Marvel. I think they own Star Trek or Star, Star Wars, Wars or both of them. And and um, and Bob Iger was the guy who brought all of this you know, woke agenda into um, Disney. And then he was stepped down and, and Bob Chapek took over and he was trying to bring it back around to the, to the thing where audience was go see it. And then he gets bumped and Chapek's back uh, and then Bob Iger's back again. So it's going to get worse. And and it doesn't matter if it gets worse or better now because the brand is irreparably damaged. And so are all the sub brands. Star Trek is dead. Star Wars is dead. Nobody cares anymore. These, these priceless cash making machines are gone. And I think that's the explanation for it, Steve, to be honest with you. When when in the 1970s, there was a real golden age of American filmmaking, a real, really, you know, Godfather, just top of the list, right? And and that was because you had directors and writers who who really believed in what they were doing. And that got you things like Apocalypse Now and all the rest of these great movies that came out in, the, in that time period. Now the whole thing's done by committee. And the problem with it being done by committee is if there's nobody on board who's making the money decisions who is quote unquote creative, then you are going to have business decisions being made about an emotional product and they will make the business decision that seems appropriate on the surface, but is in the end going to get them, get them killed. I knew... I know this. I know this network mentality. I, I worked before I started at PJTV and met you guys. I I was an editor in in the Hollywood system for ten years. And and it is the nature of Hollywood executives to come into the editing room, and and if I was if I was cutting Schindler's List, some some twenty four year old blonde would come in there and say, "No, it's great cut. Love it. Think it's moving along really well. You know, you know what I think might just just." 
just throwing things on the wall. You know what would make this movie a little better, I think? What if Schindler were to have a talking dog? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that help? Wouldn't that, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, and, and this, and, and I'm not joking, this is, this is the level of, of, of competence when, when you take an artistic, an artistic-based business that is dependent on artistic success and you take the artists out of it. I'm not saying they should budget the thing, God, no, but, but if you take them out of it, then you end up with this problem. We're just going to recycle these things. We're going to redo a soft reboot this. We're going to soft reboot that. We're going to use the same thing. I saw Avatar 2 uh, last night as we record this, and um, and they they recycled the, the bad guy. They couldn't even come up with a new villain. <laughs> there were 16 people in that theater that held, I don't know, three, 400. And this is this is two weeks after the opening of, of Avatar 2, which was the most biggest grossing film of all time. 13 years ago, people couldn't stop talking about it. But Cameron didn't change anything, didn't add anything new. It's just the same old garbage again and again and again, which is why nobody's watching movies and why everything that I see that's interesting to me is on YouTube and it's created by people that have nothing to do with the system whatsoever. Yeah, uh, Scott, we've been saying for years, kind of joking or maybe wish casting, uh, you know, Get woke, go broke, but we haven't really seen it. None, none of these companies have actually gone out of business. Um, losing a bunch of uh, share value, a bunch of market cap, doesn't actually affect uh, what they're doing as long as they can they can keep generating some kind of money from somewhere, whether it's from uh, by kowtowing to the communist Chinese dictates or or whatever it is. But one of the reasons they don't go broke is they own these properties for essentially ever now because Congress keeps extending the the lifetime of of their copyrights. And I, I want to read something to you. You're, you're a Constitution guy. Article one, section eight of the Constitution says that to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Uh, whatever happened to that limited time thing? That was that was supposed to be a spur to more innovation, wasn't it? It's funny. I just saw a headline in the Wall Street Journal this morning. I, I didn't read the story, but I'm going to go back later and take a look at it that the uh, that the copyright to Steamboat Willie is about to expire. And so Steamboat Willie was predecessor to the Mickey Mouse character and was like the first um, animated Walt Disney piece. Uh, but yeah, it's I understand being able to protect people's right mm -hmm. to have exclusive use of their of their intellectual property for a period of time so that that would foster people willing to take the risk. You know, kind of like the cost of drug development is so expensive, you've got to give the manufacturer an exclusive right to that uh, for a period of time so that they can recoup their costs and actually make a profit on it because that way people will invest in it. But I don't know. I, I think that the get woke, go broke thing to a certain extent is punishing Hollywood. I also think that the the freedom that the viewer is experiencing to time shift and to uh, watch content wherever they are and to not have to go through what, you know, over the years, the theater experience has gone from being a glorious night out to being this kind of factory processing thing where they just kind of, you know, shovel you in. Now you hardly deal with anybody. We went, we went to a movie the other day and my wife was looking at the whole concession area and she goes, gee, I wonder why they still have any people at all there. 
Like it's almost not necessary yeah. to have any people, in, you know, used to be when you went into a theater, they would like, there was an usher in the theater or maybe more than one usher and they would show you to your seat and, you know. Flashlights. Yeah. And there's like a lot of staff involved in that. There were people running the projectors. There's nobody running the projectors now. And so, you know, the, and, and dehumanizing that process has made some people go, you know what? We were kind of locked up for a while in our homes during the pandemic. Shh. That wasn't so bad. I mean, I can watch a movie anytime I want. And so Hollywood is now starting to be kind of forced to release things simultaneously on streaming services and at the theater. And so I think they're going to kind of defund themselves if they continue with this combination of despecializing, so to speak, and making it less wonderful to go to the theater and at the same time, trying to shove messages down our throat, um, we were we started watching this series, uh, TV series now. That's it's basically the movie National Treasure if it were teenagers, and uh, <laughs> you know, and, and a different treasure. treasure. Yeah, so two, one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay, so they basically took that, and it's okay. They actually got the old FBI agent from the original movie to make a cameo at the beginning of it, and um, but. So far in the first couple of episodes, we've had two lectures. One was in a restroom and this woman somewhat ironically was going off on this U.S. Marine who was uh, guarding this uh, facility and he happened to be using the restroom and she, and he said, you can't be in here, you're a woman. And then she give, gives him this speech about non-binary, blah, blah, blah. Uh. And then later, the lead actress in the thing has this crisis moment where this guy she's interested in finds out that she is undocumented. And she kept saying, I got DACA. And I'm like, what? Are you seeing a physician about this? What is it? I got DACA. You know, like like she was ashamed that somebody would find out. I'm like, nobody's ashamed of that. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, but they tried to make it some sort of big emotional burden that she was afraid anybody was going to find out she's undocumented yep. in the country. Even just some other young man, you know, was going to find out about it, like he had any authority of any kind. So anyway, I just thought, okay, first of all, you you start off derivative of, of a movie that was a great movie and you it's going to be really hard to live up to that. And now you're derivative of speeches that are being given in Congress and, you know, TikTok videos that are trying to shame us into compliance. So I don't know. I, 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 I'm not surprised they lost a ton of uh, stock value this year. What will be surprising is if they're able to recover it. Yeah. Just to add something, because uh, Scott talked about the degrading film experience and, and what you mentioned, by the way, about, you know, uh, the docu or whatever. Yeah. It's like they're still making movies where somebody, you know, where some, some, you know, 16-year-old boy is wondering about, you know, the consequences of coming out as gay. And I just want to say the consequences oh, yeah. will be you'll be elected homecoming queen. What do you <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? This is, you know, you're, you're a privileged person now. But much more important, I think, than whatever degradation there's been of the theater experience is the fact that home theaters have have taken any need to go and see go and see movies in a big theater for virtually all films now, there's no reason to do it. When you were, if you were going to watch uh, Top Gun Maverick, let's say, uh, on VHS on a, you know, on a TV screen, this week, well, look, Maverick, the top of the star. It's like, you know, that's, uh, and your resolution, I think was like 400 by 300, something like that, right? Now you're getting, now at home, you're getting 4K screens, you're getting a surround sound, you're getting Dolby 5.1, and you, you have a better theater than yeah. most second run theaters are. So that has killed 
those mid-range movies. There's still a market for the super low-budget horror films because they cost so little yep. that they can afford to not make a whole lot. But really, that's what drives the whole tentpole phenomenon. And since these people haven't got a single creative instinct in their heads, and since they're spending half a billion dollars per movie now, they have to do um, a Marvel movie, and it has to start this person, and it has to be a rehash of this because this worked last time, and and it's it's I I think it's Quentin Tarantino said this is the worst period of filmmaking in American history. Absolutely, and I think he's a hundred percent. I hadn't heard him say that, but I number one, I believe he said it. Number two, he's he's on the button right. Although there are so still some directors who can actually get away with a little creativity. I've always been a, a Tarantino fan. I discovered him by accident. Tuesday was always new movie day, uh, new movie release day at the local video store. It wasn't even a blockbuster, a little mom and pop place uh, right next to my apartment in San Francisco, and I go there on a Tuesday because I'm a big movie guy every Tuesday and I go and there is a new movie and the cover has Harvey Keitel with a gun in his hand. This is this is 1993. And in 1993, when you see Harvey Keitel with a gun in his hand, you rent the movie. That's that's this is math. It's, mm -hmm. it's all there is to it. I go home. I stick the, the the tape in the machine and it's it's a bunch of guys in black suits with white shirts and black ties talking about Madonna. What great the movie. hell am I watching? This is amazing. It's a great movie. Um, and that sort of risk taking is really what's dead because I think Bill's right. M mention the movie oh, name. Oh, sorry. That was Reservoir Dogs. My bad. I, I thought I'd yeah, said yeah, that. Yeah, so by the time Pulp Fiction came out a year and a half later or whatever it was, I was there opening night watching that with my girlfriend on the big screen. There's no way I was going to miss a Tarantino movie. Um, and his most recent one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I've always enjoyed great Tarantino movies. That one, the ending moved me. I had was tears, absolutely fantastic. Actual manly tears at the end of that movie. Yep. Um, by the way, Steve, because yeah. Quentin Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did the same out of the box, crazy, nutty, weird, loopy kind of thing that Tom Cruise did in Maverick, and that is he gave the audience what they wanted, hmm. you know, not what they should have to accept, yeah. and 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 it's like. You know, oh my God! Brilliant. As far as Reservoir Dogs go, by the way, I remember somebody was telling me, you know, trying to lay on what a, what a badass they were because they'd seen Reservoir Dogs, and I said, "Let me introduce you to a little film called Eraserhead." Oh, <laughs> and, uh, and and that was probably the end of that because that is that's the hardest that, movie that in the world to watch. Mind boggling. And I've seen some by tough ones. Not, that's that's not for everybody. That's the toughest. Steve, when you started when you started this episode by talking about um, this big failure of Hollywood being Hollywood itself. I swear, I thought you were talking about the new movie Babylon, and I was so excited that it's <laughs> failing, but apparently that's not, <laughs> I don't know if it is or it isn't, but I'll tell you, when I heard about that movie, I downloaded the screenplay and started reading it, and I thought the first 10 pages of this script should be rated X. Like, how did they even make this, like, people are going to go to the theater, think they're going to see some charming, you know, young Hollywood stars, and it's like a porno on the screen and it's just like how far can you go down before you hit rock bottom like can't you tell a yeah. story without showing us literally everything that we might have otherwise imagined in our heads you've got to no, put they can't. everything that's, on the screen that's the limit of their value system that's all they know right it, 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 this this mordor which is behind this wall behind me here uh, is it's an empire that trades in flesh and um, and Jeremy Boring made a great point when we were when we were set up Decoration Entertainment twelve years ago. 
this is a great example of the law of unintended consequences. So back when films were really kicking, you know, in the 30s and 40s and everybody's going to the movie two, three times a week, the studios would own their own theaters. Oh, the, There'd be a Paramount they theater, would play Paramount movies and so on. That's right. They were palaces. But along comes uh, some, some government some government do-gooders and say, no, this is a violation of anti-monopoly laws. So they made the studios sever the connection between the producing studio and the theater. Sounds great, except that that was when Hollywood stopped having to make movies for the American people. Prior to that, the studio had to put out something that the audience in America would go and see. And if they didn't, they were out of business. But once you cut that connection, then as long as you get some money in, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. And that's how you start finding out that, you know, China starts spending more and more money and all this outside money starts coming in. Right now, Disney has an audience of two. And that is the whoever's in charge of the Ministry of uh, of. Uh, information at the Chinese Communist Party and whoever's looking at movies for BlackRock because those two those two entities finance essentially all of Hollywood. They don't have to make movies for, for Americans anymore. They don't need it. It's not their money. They're going to get paid anyway. Yeah. Um, just just to wrap this up, Bill, I think you, you really Bastages. nailed it when you were talking about these these half billion dollar budgets and the, and and writing things by committee. All the great movies of the seventies, and I'm I'm fifty three years old. I was born in sixty nine, so seventies movies that that was my introduction to movies in the theater. Um, and some of them I couldn't see until later because I was I was not going to go to The Godfather at the age of three in 1972 when it came out. But a lot of these movies, all the great 70s movies, have one thing in common, and that was very limited budgets. Um, when uh, when Francis Ford Coppola got the rights to uh, to Puzo's The Godfather, the the studio Paramount was not willing to give him very much money because he is this this kid this this unknown. So he had to rely on a little thing called storytelling. Because there was no spectacle, um, you had to you had to hire the right actors for the roles. You had to give them a quality script, and you had to film in such a way as to tell a dramatic story. And, and it, drama is there, there's no secret recipe to drama. It's very simple: take characters that people can like or at least love to dislike, and put them through hell. It's really that simple. And it doesn't require a half a billion dollars. It doesn't require a CGI team that is five minutes of credits all by themselves. It just requires some storytelling. And Hollywood, that used to be your job. If you get back into that business, those share prices are going back up. I'm going to have to yeah. dive in here, man. Sorry. Um, before I mentioned I was an editor in Hollywood uh, before we started at PJTV. And uh, for the last five years, I, I did... 160 episodes of a show called uh, Sunday Morning Shootout, which was a behind-the-scenes movie show with Peter Bart and Peter Goober. Uh, Goober produced a whole oh, bunch yeah. of movies. Peter Gar Peter Bart was the editor of Variety, and Peter Bart was one of the two or three really influential people on The Godfather. He was inner circle stuff. He was basically fresh out of there, and he was a big part of making that movie happen. And Bart and Goober used to talk about this all the time. They would said that Almost universally, the best movies came out of very troubled sets that that almost universally, the, the, the films that were really, really crazy good had been a horrible place to work because everybody was fighting and they cared, oh. right? The actor would have an interpretation and he cared and he would argue with the director at a different interpretation and he cared and they'd find a way to sort of get all this stuff together and the, and the energy was just chaotic and unpleasant, but 
there was at least energy there. Caring. And yeah, yeah. And and that's just completely gone now. It's all it's nowadays they're actually doing I forget what it's called um called scrapbooking, I think. Nope, scrapbooking. Now, now I'm not making this up. Now when they shoot any sizable movie, they will shoot six or seven different endings to it. They'll shoot them and edit them and put them in, and then they'll test each one of these endings out on a on a test There's uh, no audience, which we, we, no, what's what it's basically saying is we don't even have the confidence in our own story to write the story. We want the audience to to write the story for us because we don't want to lose money. It's not like they got anything to say. If you if you, if you write a movie that's got seven possible endings, you're just going to put it out there and see which one gets the plurality of the vote, right? You're not telling a story. You're 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 assembling Lego pieces, yeah. and and that's that's what's really killing this yeah. business. Like what Henry Ford said: If uh, people asked me what they wanted, or if I'd have asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah, that's it. So Hollywood, get back to work. That's your right angle on that. Brought to you by the members of BillWhittle.com. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time.